We are walking through the book of 1 Corinthians. We've been doing this for many, many months. We've been talking about unity, uh, how Paul talks about the, there's no reason for divisions in the church. In fact, he pleads with the church, don't be divided. Uh, and this reflects Jesus' prayer in John 17, where he's, he, he prays that all the followers of Jesus would be unified so that the world may believe that the Father sent the Son. So if you think about it, unity helps the world to see that Jesus was sent by the Father. Division amongst the body causes people to think that that's not true. We talked about uh, our brains being cognitive minors, and this leads to division because we, we label people, certain people groups, and then we don't get to know people, and and sometimes we got to move past those labels and get to know people because when we get to know people, we go, oh, he's not so different from me. We talked about the most important thing for Paul is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of the cross. Nothing should be top priority for anybody who's a follower of Jesus other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've been talking lately about pride and that pride is a problem within the church. It was in the church of, in Corinth and it is today that there is an arrogance and that arrogance gets us, gets in the way of us getting to know God or getting to hear his voice. In fact, Paul points out, out of their arrogance, the church in Corinth was allowing a man who was li living in sin to continue to live in sin. They weren't calling it out. And Paul is saying, ah, arrogance, get rid of it. It's leaven that infects the whole world. We just started talking about pornea, which is sexual immorality, and the pain of pornea, the pain of sexual immorality. And last Sunday, I talked about three foundational things that we have to believe before we can have this conversation about human sexuality. And I want to encourage you, if you weren't here or you haven't had a chance to hear that message, you go back and listen to it. But we, we talked about how God created our sexuality. And what God creates is good. And if you remember, good is the Hebrew word told. And we look at the creation story where God said after each day, it is good. Told being more than just what, how we define good. Told is Whatever anything called tov or good, it has life within it, and not only life, but seeds of life to reproduce. So when God calls something good, it is way bigger than what we think. We also talked about another foundational thing is that God's love doesn't mean he ignores sin. It means he saves us from our sin. And so that means if there's sin in our life, God's not just ignoring it. Yes, he loves us right where we are, but he challenges us to move forward, to be transformed. The last thing we talked about last week is that Jesus is Lord. Yep, he's our Savior, and yes, he's our friend. But we have to remember he's our Lord, meaning that my will must be submitted to his will, always. Today we're going to talk about one more foundational piece before we dive into some of this stuff around sexual immorality and human sexuality, and that is this. We are made for covenant relationships. 
What do I mean by that? Well, a covenant is this. A covenant is a binding agreement between two or more parties. And these binding agreements are not to be broken. When you step into a covenant, it, you're, you're stepping in, you're binding together, and nothing, no matter how bad it gets, nothing is supposed to separate that. There are three kinds of covenants that we see in the Bible, and so I'm going to just mention those and kind of define those three kind of covenants and, and help us understand a little bit better what kind of covenant we are in with God and what kind of covenant that we step into when it comes into uh, marriage and that kind of stuff. The first kind of covenant is called a suzerain or vassal covenant. And what a suzerain vassal covenant is this. It's a covenant that a king makes with his subjects. The suzerain is the king, the subjects are the vassal, and the king comes in and makes a covenant with his people on condition that the people follow through on certain rules and laws and, and that kind of stuff. So a king says, I will care for you, I will protect you, I will watch you, but you must obey my laws. That is kind of a, a suzerain vassal covenant. This is, in essence, the picture of the covenant from the Old Testament. God made a promise but that promise has conditions. Look at Deuteronomy 1.8. We can see a little bit of the suzerain vassal covenant between God and man. It says this, See, I have given you this land. Go in and take possession of the land the Lord swore he would give to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to their descendants after them. Notice here that the suzerain, God, has given a land. But that land is uh, dependent on the vassal, the people going in and taking it. And that covenant even carries on farther. Once they went into the land, that they would keep the land by focusing on God. And as we know from the story, they went into the land, but they didn't fully take the land. So the people didn't carry through on their end of the Bargain. So a, a, a suzerain vassal covenant is a conditional covenant. There's a prayer that we're all familiar with, or a verse in that Second Chronicles 7:14. This this familiar passage is a suzerain vassal conditional covenant. You can see it in the, this, these words here. Listen to this: If my people who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Notice, God, the suzerain, will heal the land if the vassal humbly humbles themselves before God and turns from their wicked ways. This verse is part of the Old Covenant. Now, does it mean we can't use it today? Yes, we can use it today. There's implications there that are for us today, but we need to understand that we're no longer part of the Old Covenant, and we'll see that in just a minute. We have to understand that this verse, if then, is 
more part of that Old Testament covenant. The second type of covenant is what we call the parity or kinship covenant. And this is an agreement between two equal parties. Uh, there's few stipulations to the requirements, but it's two people that are on equal level. Like a um, parity covenant would be, Terry and I, we just sold our house here about a month ago. We went into an agreement or a covenant with the people who bought our house. We said, here, you get the deed to our property and the building if you give us X amount of dollars. We all signed the papers, everything was transferred, and so now we've completed that covenant or that agreement. Marriage is another parity or kinship covenant. It's two people who are equal coming together and agreeing to live in fidelity or live committed to each other and not allowing any other person into that agreement. That's a parity covenant. A parity covenant is only made between two human beings. Nowhere in the Bible do you see a parity covenant between God and between man. Because we're not equal to God, right? It makes sense. That leads us to the third covenant, and that is called the promissory covenant or a royal grant. And similar to the suzerain vassal covenant, this is between unequal parties. There's the king and there's the subject. Unlike the suzerain vassal covenant, a royal grant is made or a promise is made where there's no action needed by the vassal or the ones who are receiving the promise. It is an unconditional promise. All the work is done by the suzerain. All the work is done by the king. It's a legal binding commitment given from one side only. The wonderful thing for us is that God made this covenant with us. When he sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, to rise again, it was a promise from God. A promise that your sins are forgiven, that you are cleansed, that you will be a part of his kingdom, that you will spend eternity with him, that you can enter his throne room. And there's no, nothing you can do. You didn't have any part of it. It is all God's. Ephesians 1, starting with verse 3, gives us a picture of this promissory covenant. Listen to these words and think about all that God has done and all we have done. Praise be to the God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will. 
to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through the blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and under earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who are the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Can you see the unconditional promise made by God? Do you see that it is through Jesus Christ that this covenant relationship is all about what God has done for us. And our response is just to live in that righteousness. Later today, when we celebrate communion, we will be coming forward, or we will be passing out these elements, and we will be celebrating this covenant that God has. We begin next week to have conversations around the pain of pornea or the pain of sexual immorality. Today I want to talk about this parity covenant, this covenant between two people of equal status, more specifically about this covenant that happens between a man and a woman. And so to help us talk about that, I want us to take a look at Genesis 2, where story of Eve being created in. So if you want to turn with me to your Bible, Genesis 2, verses 18 through 25, or you can just you see them up on the screen. Genesis 2. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no super helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother, and he is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt When we look at a passion like this, it's important for us to try and understand what the writer of 
of this passage is trying to get across. What is the, the main thing that you're trying to communicate to us? And, and part of that is understanding the, the genre that this passage is written in, or the style that the writer uses. And one of the things that we see in the book of Genesis a lot, because Genesis is, is, a, is a narrative, it's a story, but there's a lot of poetry in there. And so uh, we, we can't just read anything, or most of Genesis, just a story. We, we get some deeper insights when we understand how the writer was writing. One of the things that the writer of Genesis uses often is called a chiasm. A chiasm is a sequence of elements of a sentence, of a verse or a paragraph, uh, which are repeated. So as you see up on the screen, a chiasm starts with A, it'll go A, and then it goes to B, and then C, and then it goes to D, but then it goes back to C, and then B, and then A. And, and I'll explain a little bit more, and we'll see this, because the creation of Eve's story in Genesis 2 is a classic chiasm. Now, some chiasms are Instead of A, B, C, D, C, B, A, they may be A, B, C, B, A. And the story of Eve and her creation is that A, B, C, C, B, A. Now, we're going to start out by looking at the two A's. These are at the beginning of the story and the end of the story. And so you'll see this. Right in chapter 2, verse 18, we find this. Making a suitable partner for man. That's what verse 18 is about. Now you drop to the end of the story, verses 24 through 25, and what do we see? The man and the woman, a suitable partner. See how they match up? Okay? It is good for man to have a partner, to have a woman. And if we remember from last week, good in our definition, good means has the potential for life and the seeds for life. The next chiasm, the two B's are this. First one, creation and naming of animals. Chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. On the other side, in verses 22 uh, uh, and verse 23, is the creation of and naming of the woman. See how they match up. Okay? You see in verse 19 and 20 that God had, the, the writer tells the story of, of, of God creating animals. I mean, why does the writer want us to know this? Well, you can say because, you know, part of the, the reason is because he wants to know that there's no other animal, no other being that is in partnership with, with Adam, or that Adam was alone, whatever it may be, we see that this is an important thing. Center chiasm is before we switch it on the screen. Put it back, put it back, quick, quick. Look at how you guess. You kind of see it now. Go ahead and put it back up on your chart. That's my fault. The rib. God took the rib out of Adam and formed Eve. Notice that all the animals in verses 19 and 20 are formed out of the ground. Remember, Adam was formed out of the ground. Notice that Eve is not formed out of the ground. 
just formed out of atoms grid. Now, interesting thing about chiasm is chiasm points to the center, and what is in the center is really the most important piece of the story. So, yes, Adam didn't have a suitable partner. That's an important part of the story. Yes, God formed all the animals out of the ground, and Adam named all of them. That was important. And yes, creating the woman is important, and the man and woman being together, but the why and the how all come out of the center, the rhythm. What does what the writer want us to see? Why does the writer, writer want us to know that for him, the most important piece of the story is the fact that one wasn't created out of brown like anything else, but out of the man. Could it be? God's original design, the relationship between a man and a woman, is more than what he expected. I mean, when we think about marriage today, I mean, especially in our culture, it's how are you going to meet my needs? And if you don't meet my needs and don't make me happy, I'm out of here. I think there are four truths that we need to understand out of the story and out of the fact that for the writer, the rib is the most important piece of the story. The first truth is this a helper fit for him, which is what was missing, is Ezra Kinego, can only happen by somebody who actually came out of Azer is the Hebrew word and it means helper or one who helps. And the word is used many times in scripture to describe God, like in Psalms 121.1, where does my help Ezer come from? My help Ezer comes from the Lord. So this helper has nothing to do with rank or priority or authority. It has to do with someone helping someone else. Connecto means turning toward or in front of or facing. And we've done this before. Uh, and those of you who went to the marriage retreat that Terry and I talked about, we talked about this. Ezra Kinego is a face-to-face -face thing. Ezra Kinego, a helpmate, suitable. Suitable means someone who is standing face-to-face. -face. The relationship between a man and a woman is not side-to-side. -side. I think the vast majority of our marriages, even within our churches, people are side-by-side. They get along. That's why God designed 
for this covenant relation. It's face to face. Second truth that I want us to see is just taken out of For Hebrew rabbis who speak a lot on the Genesis and the creation story, for them, back in Genesis 1 27, where it says God created man in his own image, male and female, he created them. For them, their belief is that man, before the creation of Eden, Eve, Eve, was both masculine and feminine all in one. So for the Hebrews, when rabbis, when they read and hear that here God created them, male and female, this one being had both masculine and feminine, and then God put Adam to sleep, took a rib out, part of Adam was taken out, the feminine part was taken out. When it's something taken out of you or away from you, now you look at it. So the story of this covenant relationship is all about it. it. It's a story of romance, and it's a story of the relationship between a man and a woman that we need to grasp. It is the longing for the man to have back with him once again that part was taken from him. You see, There is a piece of understanding that what draws us to the person of the other gender is because that person is a part of us. Born of my bones, flesh of my Marriage, according to God, is not just two people coming together into a Literally, two people becoming one. It is literally the body and the rib coming back together in a metaphorical sense. Interesting side note is this. In Genesis, here is a story when says that man he now named this new being woman. The Hebrew word for man is each. The Hebrew word for woman is isha. It literally comes out of when they're together. It's a part of, it's like our words, man and woman. They're a part of each other. But there's an interesting thing to notice that when you get outside of the garden, in Genesis 3, chapter 20, after the fall, and they are outside the garden, it says this, man now calls her Eve, and named Eve, means the mother of all For Hebrew rabbis, there's a subtle change to see. The man calls the woman Isha, which is a part of him. He recognized that the woman was a part of him, but once again, 
outside the garden and after the fall, all of a sudden he recognized the woman for what she could give him. That is part of the battle that's been going on between man and the woman of You see, God created us to be in union, to be one, to recognize who we are in Christ, who we are when we are one and we are together, and our culture and our world says, I want that woman to be give me what she can provide for me what she can do for me. And if she doesn't meet my needs, I can live different life. You see, it's all in the name Who do we call to him? This third thing and the fourth thing. It's masculine and feminine coming to Again, verse 24. Let's look at from 1 to 7. This is This is particular relationship. The covenant relationship is about masculine and feminine coming back together as one. The masculine and feminine being. And this all set up what we're going to talk about as we move forward around human sexuality. This is why it's so important for us to talk about human sexuality in the church and talk about God's original intent and his original design because our world has changed it and is changing it. It's making it as murky and cloudy. It's all about desires. And next week, we're going to look at the fall, and we're going to look at desires in the fall. We're going to see how the desires get out of whack, and it gets us off path. When we stop listening to the voice of God, and we stop looking at God and how he created things and submitting our will to his will, it all comes to one Conclusion today. We've been talking the last week about foundational truth. And just to remind you this God created your sexuality and it is good. It is healthy. In fact, it is known so or very. In a moment, we're going to come to the table celebrating the fact that Jesus died for our sins. And the other foundational truth is that God loves you right where you're at, and He loves you so much He's going to put you on a journey of transformation. Because you are created in His image, and He is holy, and we are to be holy like He is holy. The other foundational thing is that Jesus is holy. This is hard. We like to be glorified all the time. I have to be. I have to be. 
And the last thing foundation wants to do forward the next week is to talk about sexism and morality in this. And we are made for other relationships. Now, just a caveat here. If you're single, that doesn't mean you're out of the picture. In fact, in two weeks, Matthew's going to be talking about that. Covenant relationships can come in different shapes and sizes, as the most important covenant relationship we have is with our God. And remember, this covenant relationship is a promise story covenant. God made a promise to us. And we just need to live right to it. Let's pray. Father, we desire to live our lives in a way that brings glory and honor. So I pray that you would just um, open our eyes to your needs. I pray that as we come to this table today to celebrate the death and resurrection.